Promise Note Promises Women in Motion When we talk about performance, we most often first conjure some singular body in motion and that body's consciousness of its movement. We see and are ourselves conscious of some skin, some limbs, some style, some blur of movement, at once artificial and authentic, of performance and performativity itself. But bodies performing are not bodies alone. For who do they perform for and who with? Fourth Master Symposium in the series Women in the Arts and Leadership on October 7th and 8th, 2020 at the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel was dedicated to ideas and iterations of performance and to the way in which its embodied practices, its bodies, are often framed or received by narrow notions not only of gender, race, class, geography, technology and temporality, but of what performance itself means and entails. A body in motion, for example. Whose body, though? And what kind of movement? Movement, indeed, is always both, suggesting something singular, a body in tender, private effort, and something collective. Presence, proximity, voice, movement and performative relations are the tools by which many contemporary artists in unprecedented ways continue to explore how to create equitable space for our ever-regulated, duly delimited bodies. This symposium serves those practices, examining how performances has become the means by which so many artists and thinkers reflect on and denounce political systems that foster inequity, violence and binary relations at their core. Our various guests made explicit this set of relations between singularity and collectivity, authenticity and performativity, a language of narrativity, both visual and linguistic, movement both, physical and intellectual, the complicated desire to perform for others and with others, and to read such performances correctly, was a recurring idea and impulse of the Women in Motion Symposium as it continued with performances, conversations, screenings and readings by artists, thinkers, poets, filmmakers, composers and teachers. Performers all, including Kat Anderson, Julieta Aranda, Barbara Casavecchia, Mayra Rodriguez Castro, Pan de Jing, Dorota Gaveda, and Egle Culpo Kaite, Ingela Iermann, Pauline Curnier Jardin, Banu Kapil, Lynn Kwasi, Isabel Lewis, Tessa Mars, Sonia Fernandez Pan, Sadie Plant, and Martina-Sophie Wildberger. Dancers Featuring Barbara Casavecchia This is what I'd like to talk about on learning, archiving, dancing and sometimes crying together aka Grazie Daphne. Last year I was commissioned a short text on enthusiasm by Freeze magazine. 
So after turning to Greek etymologies for help, I ended up praising ataraxia, which is calmness, impassivity, because I perceived the pressure to perform perpetual enthusiasm and motion online as crushingly unsustainable. In retrospect, maybe I should have been more careful with expressing my will to be static rather than ecstatic, as these last months brutally tested. But I remember that in the same piece, I also wrote about the joys of dancing in the streets of Milan in solidarity with Tomboys Don't Cry. The erotics of dancing and moving together being what my body has missed most. Tomboys Don't Cry is, quote, a platform for girls of any gender and non-binary creatures aiming to promote a post-identity agenda within artistic practice with the effort to create days and nice adventures, unquote. Um, Tomboys Don't Cry was created in 2011 by DJ Sheehy and artist Daphne Borgeri. I've known Daphne for many years and today I'd like to talk about a project I've shared with her and other friends and what I think I've learned from it, which was a lot. Daphne's initial experiences with the Italian hip-hop scene, where being a teenage lesbian writer was an exception met with a lot of gender pressure, shaped their ways of reclaiming and occupying public space. Such ways are polyphonic. She's a connector and a generator of networks through music, art, publishing, design, cinema, activism, and curatorship. In 2000, she co-founded the Pornflakes Queer Crew. From 2009 to 2011, she co-created with Noga Inbar, the Mother Itinerant Feminist Festival in Tel Aviv, London, Berlin, and also Venice. And since 2013, she curates in Milan the non-profit platform Sprint, which is not only a salon for independent publisher and artist books, but also a program of exhibition, talks, readings, screenings, and a warm and caring community building enterprise, I'd say. And everything is conceived by Daphne as her artistic practice. Her solo show, uh, Lian Linea Alien, curated, sorry, by Giulia Tognone at Marcelleria in 2017, was a mix of live sessions, performances, sculptures, workshops for kids, secret cocktails, and even a nail salon, as yesterday <laughs> was being mentioned. But now, and now that tomboys have been selected for the upcoming Quadriennale in Rome, which will be happening very soon at the end of the month, and it's titled Fuori, which literally means out, uh, also in homage to the legendary Fronte Unitario Homosessuale Rivoluzionario Italiano, the Italian United Homosexual Revolutionary Front, created in 1971. And Tomboys will be participating with a project, which I think is super important now, focused on the practice of crying and its physical, cultural, and social dynamics, uh, extended the invitation to participate to a core of other voices. So besides Daphne, there's going to be Deborah Joyce Holman, Idioletta, Rada Cogeli, Tarek Lacrissi, 
Eleonora Lucarini, Karin Michalski and Anne Kvetovic, Elena Radici, Cinzia Ruggeri and the duo Real Madrid, with whom Daphne recently published the pamphlet Vizi Privati, Private Vices, in reference to a shared passion for archives of LGBT plus publications. And since it's been published by the Istituto Svizzera in Rome, there's, I mean, it's easy to download the PDF from there and it's for free. And here is a section of the materials that they put together and the archives they've been interested in. Daphne is an avid collector of independent publications, fanzines, magazines, flyers, stickers, all forms of printed matter. She collects also queer cinema and videos and enjoys sharing them with public screenings. When she organized one at the independent space Il Colorificio in Milano for the opening, I mean, last fall, of the year-long project Lano Solare, she showed the video Buckle from 1993, made by Catherine Gunt and Julie Tolentino, which brought me back to my student days at CUNY and the legendary Clit Club in New York, where I was one dragged by Claudia, the same friend who also brought me to Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, the Lesbian Archives in Brooklyn, and opened up so many doors, books, and discussions for me. When back then, I was an angry young art historian, unconsciously, I'd say, at war with the normativity of art history and the cringing dryness of academic discourse and pretty much looking for a voice on my own. Daphne defines her own archive as messy, non-premeditated, born by chance, and elastic in its vision and in the way it is managed. It's also the result of a controversial relation with the written word, started with a personal difficulty to read and write as a kid. And as she wrote, books, in my case, initially represented a symbol of conflict with the concept of hierarchy, including language. Even before learning to read, I was aware of being lesbian and had the unconscious intu intuition that none of the speaking voices in those books could partially be mine. Fortunately, it didn't turn out to be true. So it's in this inquiry and resistance to the oppressive structures of language, I, I think is where Daphne and I cross paths. In 2019, for a seminar on sexuality and visual cultures that I conceived together with Lucrezia Cipitelli and Simone Frangi, and later also Raffaella Puleio at the Art Academy of Brera, we asked Daphne to lead a workshop with the students. She proposed almost immediately to transgress, that is to move out <laughs> the class, and look into a series of alter institutional archives in Milan. The result was a self-organized, self-laid out and self-printed fanzine titled, If I Can't Archive, I Don't Want to Be Part of Your Revolution, whose title <laughs> rephrases a famous slogan by activist, anarchist, feminist and philosopher Emma Goldman, as much as an equally famous collective at work on the subject and issues of performance. 
after that, she brought the students to Archivio Primo Moroni, which is hosted by the Centro Sociale Occupato Autogestito Cox 18, which is, I mean, started as a squad and evolved in the sort of occupied cultural center and so forth. It includes that archive, over 15,000 books and 1,500 magazines. Together, Daphne and the students looked at all the issues of Fuori, the magazine published by the Fronte Unitario Rivoluzionario Mosessuale Italiano, etc., from 1971 through 1982. And they also looked into a special collection of articles by the Milanese writer, activist, playwright, and thinker Mario Mieli, who in 1977 published Elementi di Critica Omosessuale, Elements of a Homosexual Critique, recently translated in English in 2018, which, I mean, who was pivotal for the theory and also embodiment of what he called transessualità. Also, Primo Moroni was an important figure for counterculture in Milan, from the 60s all the way through the 90s and cyberpunk. Before opening the, by now, almost mythological Kaluska bookshop, that operated as a meeting point and shelter for a generation of non-aligned individuals and groups. I'd like to remember that he was a professional dancer and once European champion of Charleston. Because I think movement and movements defined much of his life. I find it equally important to remember that the Kaluska bookshop was initially created by Primo and his wife, Sabina Moroni, with the idea of providing texts, publications, and informative material for progressive teachers who were trying to adopt anti-authoritarian pedagogies, working on subjects such as emigration, repression, the condition of women, the structure of the family, and so forth, with the express desire to set the school in motion. Daphne invited the students to visit also the compulsive archive created again in Milan by Giulia Vallicelli, an archive that reorganizes and opens to researchers for publications and exhibitions on feminism, riot girls, queer core, and Italian punk scene, as well as an exhibition at the small Galleria Otto Zoo curated by the artist Jacopo Migliani which included his own independent editorial platform called Self-Pleasure Publishing and the archive Luca Lonati Luciani, which also explored the area of LGBTQI plus sexuality with essays, magazines, ephemera, and photographic material. And all of this is happening in Milan, although it's not so evident, not so well-known. So, after a few months of research, we presented the fanzine in Brera in 2020, February, right before the start of the pandemic. And this is, this is where we did it. Uh, it. It is a church, and it's also quite funny that that was the setting. Uh, but it, it also has a small, interesting story. I mean, uh, Chiesa di San Carpoforo, ex Chiesa of San Carpoforo, was occupied by the students of Brera in the late 60s for a laboratory of militant communication and then ended up little by little becoming a sort of 
an exhibition and performance and lab space altogether, which then was included in the Art Academy. But I mean, the two stories seem to have so much in common, so it was very nice to present the publication there. So the evening included also the screening of a crowdfunded documentary film titled Mel Maride, which in dialect is, I mean, the <laughs> dialect from Lombardy is a derogatory term for divorced women. And the film was done by two close friends of Daphne, Elisa Bozzarelli and Alice Daneluzzo. And since technology is ever a pain, when we were about to screen the movie, lights went off. <laughs> and so we ended doing the presentation for the first 10 to 15 minutes in pitch dark with a Daphne holding <laughs> her phone to just, I mean, make light. And I really liked that picture and that moment was kind of really unusual. But um, the film reconstructs the story of the group of women who started a feminist, self-organized free clinic in, uh, for women in Piacenza in 1976. And Piacenza is a very small, very conservative and very patriarchal town where, I mean, to have this sort of position and stance meant a lot of one-to-one -one <laughs> daily interactions and lots of social pressure. Uh, one of the women included in that story is Elisa's mother. So with what it's called a story of feminism, liberation and friendship, the directors reconstructed a very personal and at the same time collective genealogy of descent rooted in their own culture and language, which is sometimes what I think also super important because I mean to find examples of what was language and how it was used in the past within your own language sometimes kind of operates wonders. I mean, we're also used to speak and think in English, but sometimes we need to make things move in, in a different way. And at least this was my experience. So, because, I mean, what I think is that the whole issue of the language of the oppressor plays such a key role in, in so many ways. So to me, the film testifies to the importance of legacies and also of how liberated vocabularies and bodies can help empower some of the present practices. And I would also like to add that, I mean, the movie happened because it was crowdfunded, um, and the movie happened, and the research happened, and our exploration of the archives and many other things happened when, in Italy, the political climate was moving quite in the opposite direction. I mean, and vice prime minister was saying horrible things and homophobia and transphobia and a lot of aggression I mean in, in, in the public space and in the public discourse was unfolding. So I think the climate also emotionally was very intense and it was also an attempt to reclaim some space. So I was also there when they presented the film the very first time. In, in Milan, and it was also really good fun to see these generations coming together and all the ladies were there and there was so much fun and laughter and also maybe it's not so evident from this trailer but it's also 
an often very hilarious movie about what you're allowed to say <laughs> and what you're asked not to say and what can be said when the conditions for speaking change. So what I'd like to point out is that Lucrezia, Simone and I did not participate in the making of the fanzine. We just made room for it with our Monday readings, where we were so happy also to welcome a conversation with Corrado Levi, who is another sort of personal hero. He was one of the founders of Fuori. He's been forever one of the most supportive creatures when it comes to Libreria delle Donne and the women's movement in Milan. Uh, he's also an artist. He is uh, an incredibly important pedagogist. I mean, he was teaching at the Faculty of Architecture and was inviting in his classes all sorts of speakers, including artists from New York like Ramelzi. I mean, while trying to explain the relation between bodies, space, architecture, and public space. He worked as a curator and, and, and so many things. And he's also, I mean, a champion of Savat, uh, of all things, and the necessity of in including movement in your practices. So Daphne and their students worked freely back and forth for weeks the texts emerging from individual researches in response to the encounter with the archive are all very different. Um, sometimes they're messy, sometimes uneven, uh, sometimes just funny, or they could, I mean, elicit more research. Sometimes they're amazing. But, and also the transcriptions of dialogues include the mistakes and slips of memory that orality itself includes all the time. To me, they're also passionate and personal and, and self-affirming. So when I read them, they made me think a lot about what we teach to suppress by default and what we would need to learn to unsuppress in order to let ideas, voices, and sometimes tears, as tomboys don't cry will remind us soon, emerge. Because the issue in the end is, is often what to do with the archive. And as Ari Ariella Azule reminds us with the work, what, what is visible in the archive and what is guarded off the archive and excluded and silenced and, I mean, as if it was not there quite often in, in the narrations we are exposed to and in our historical narrations and also our understanding of what came right before us in, in the recent past. So, very simply, I'd like to use this occasion to say mille grazie, Daphne, indeed, for turning the class into a place of pleasure and can't wait to dance again together. To that end, I'd like to read two short excerpts um, from a new book of Audre Lorde's work, which was edited by poet and translator Myra Rodriguez Castro, who will be uh, presenting us with a lecture this afternoon. We're so lucky for that. And this new book is titled Audre Lorde, Dream of Europe. And it collects Lorde's work from her pivotal years in Berlin, 
where she taught and lived and wrote and thought and loved. And famously, Audre Lorde described herself as a black lesbian mother warrior poet. And I think that description of her precedes and inflects every text of hers that we read. Um, in this section, Audre Lorde writes, poetry is the most subversive use of language there is because it attempts to bring about change by altering people's emotions. And if I can get you to feel things that you did not know you could or were otherwise shielded against, then I have a better chance of moving you in the direction of questioning what do I want to feel. As we become more in touch with what I call the force of the erotic, the deeply had ability to feel within each of us, we come closer to asking all of our lives that we feel a certain way. When we don't feel a certain way, the question arises, what is going on? I believe that in order to bring about political and social change, we must have people, warriors, who are sensitized to their own senses and needs so that we may operate not out of some external directive, that is, this is good, but from an internal sense of, this is right. And I think I was thinking about the erotic, which Audre Lorde has written so much about, um, considering the film that we closed with um, during our morning session. And to that end, I'm going to close this very short reading um, with a poem by Audre Lorde that she wrote in Berlin. And she read it out loud in 1989. And it's transcribed here as follows. And it's called Stations. Some women love to wait for life, for a ring in the June light, for a touch of the sun to heal them, for another woman's voice to make them whole, to untie their hands, put words in their mouth, form to their passages sound, for their, to their screams, for some other sleeper to remember their future, their past. Some women want for their right train in the wrong station, in the alleys of morning, for the noon to holler, the night come down. Some women wait for love to rise up, the child of their promise, to gather from earth what they do not plant, to claim pain for labor, to become the tip of an arrow, to aim at the heart of now, but it never stays. Some women wait for visions that do not return, where they were not welcome, naked for invitations to places they always wanted to visit, to be repeated. Some women wait for themselves around the corner and call the empty spot peace, but the opposite of living, to not only not living, and the stars do not care. Some women wait for something to change, and nothing does change, so they change themselves. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, and Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. 
The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop, and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science, and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. That's dertank.ch. Or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Institut du Souche is part of Museum Souche, an initiative by Art Stations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found on museumsouche.ch. That's museumsouche.ch. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Research assistant Alice Wilke. Editing and voiceover Elena Ziesa. Music Niklas Kammermeier. Press and Communication, Anna Franke. Technical Support, Konrad Siegel, Christina Pavlovic, Vitals Brun, Chris Handberg, Steven Schoch and Esther Hunziger. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut du Souche, Art Stations Foundation CH 2021.